Welcome to the QuackCast, a skeptical and sarcastic evaluation of quacks, frauds, and charlatans, also known as alternative and complementary medicine. This is brought to you, as always, by Pusware LLC, the publisher of the Purse of Lasers Annotated Companion, Infectious Facts, Dogma, and Opinion, your Uber hyperlink electronic guide to infectious diseases, available at pusware.com. We will also find the excellent Persiflagers Puscast to review the infectious disease literature, as well as my other blog, Rubor, Dolor, Kalor, two more. However, the relentless pimping of my other projects is not the primary purpose of this podcast. It's about various and sundry scams, supplements, complementary, and alternative medicine. For those of you who have not heard this before, the guiding quote of this podcast is from Thomas Jefferson, who said, in a different context, Ridicule is the only weapon that can be used against unintelligible propositions. Ideas must be distinct before reason can act upon them. Remember, this is on iTunes, and my ravenous ego loves five-star reviews. So after you've listened to this, please log on to iTunes and write me a glowing review. First, some business. And if you don't listen to the business, you can skip ahead to the next chapter. As you may or may not know, I have my fingers in many pies. And since I have yet to win the lottery, I do have to work for a living. And I have all this infectious disease stuff I do. Podcasts and blogs and lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And I write for the Science-Based Medicine blog. And I'm currently working on a project that has been consuming what is laughably known as my free time. And will probably do so for another couple of months. I am a slow writer, slow as flowing glass. So while I'm working on my new infectious disease-related project, I cannot write all new material for this podcast. So I am going to recycle material from the Science-Based Medicine blog, update them, throw in some smart-ass comments, and present them to you. This is not a used podcast, of course. It's a pre-owned podcast. Once I get my ID project up and running, I will get back to more regular Quackcasts with all new material. Business issue number two. Let's talk pronunciation. First of all, people bitch continually in my email about key versus chi. Now, this one I really don't give a rat's ass about. C-H-I or Q-I, in my opinion, both spell crap. But if the correct pronunciation is key, then I guess the golfer back in the 60s was Kiki Rodriguez. Either way, I'm going to sometimes pronounce it chi, sometimes pronounce it ki. I don't really care how it's pronounced. The second one is nuclear, or nuclear, or nuclear. I don't know why, but people routinely get their knickers in a twist over my pronunciation of this word. And I will let you know up front that I am totally tone deaf to this. It's like the difference between ant and ant. I say them the same. My wife says aunt and ant. Or like windy and windy. Now, windy is in the witch, or windy is moving air. I hear them and say them the same. Now around these parts, there are a small number of people who put an R in the state just to the north. They call it Washington. I'm going to wash my clothes in Washington. I think it's pronounced debride, not debride. Debride is the woman who walks down to Isle of the Church. And it's cephazolin, not cephazolin, if you want to keep the same emphasis on the same syllable of the words. And it's probably centimeter, not sonometer. I've never had anybody ask me for 25 cents for a cup of coffee. But nuclear, 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 
I don't hear it. I don't notice it. And so the sapphirists in the audience who are going to get acutely Wiggins over that word because probably the former president allegedly mispronounced it, I don't hear it. Nuclear, 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 I don't care. Live with it. For those pendants in the audience, might I suggest Stephen Fry's program, Series 2, Episode 3, entitled Language. He's a far funnier man than I, and his rants on those who have an interesting, quote, correct, end quote, pronunciation of English is far more eloquent and funny than I could ever be. But now on to the topic of today's podcast. Today's podcast is called In Defense of Vaccines, or Let's Kill the Children. Who would have thought that I would have to defend vaccines? To me, it's like defending fresh water, flush toilets, or the Constitution. All, to me at least, are manifestly good things. To paraphrase Benjamin Franklin, vaccines are proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. But there are people out there who do not want to have vaccines, nor do they want their children to have vaccines. They have a variety of reasons for this anti-vaccination approach, I thought it would be worthwhile going through their reasons. The first is fear of toxins. Toxins are of two types. There's mercury, and then there's all the rest. First, the mercury. The big worry is that the mercury in the form of thimerosal, which is a neurotoxin, mercury, not thimerosal, could or perhaps cause or trigger autism in kids who are predisposed to that disease. Parents often become aware of the symptoms of autism around the time that they start getting vaccines. So it is not an unreasonable hypothesis to ask the question, are vaccines or the use of thimerosal associated with the development of autism? Now, when I was a kid, I loved to break open thermometers and play with the mercury. And I don't think it did me any harm. I mean, the voices say good things about me, so they can't be abnormal. So is there data to support mercury as a cause of autism? Since there is some biologic plausibility, as mercury is a neurotoxin. Hatters, by the way, were made mad by the mercury they use in the production of their hat, hence the Mad Hatter from Alice in Wonderland. So how much mercury is in the vaccines? Well, when they all contained thimerosal, the total dose given out over a decade was about 225 micrograms of mercury. Remember that number, 225 micrograms. A six-ounce can of tuna has about 53 micrograms of mercury. Now, remember that a nanogram is a billionth of a gram, and a microgram is a millionth of a gram. The peak serum, and they measured the amount of mercury in the blood of kids who got vaccines, the peak serum amount is 3 to 5 nanograms of mercury per mil. That's nano. Nano is small. The half-life of mercury was about four days, and all the detectable extra mercury was gone by day 30 after the vaccine. The FDA allows us, and aren't they ever so nice to do that, to eat at least five micrograms per kilogram per day of mercury safely. So the mythical 70-kilogram human, all my patients are at least twice that weight, can eat 35 milligrams a day safely or half a can of tuna. The exposure from the vaccines to mercury is minuscule compared to environmental and yet safe consumption of mercury. However, many who worry about mercury may not be understanding of the dose-response curve, and they're probably all a bunch of homeopaths who think that the more dilute the mercury is in the blood, the more powerful the mercury becomes. 
But from a pharmacokinetic point of view, the tiny doses of mercury that are given are unlikely to have any toxic effect. But of course, Ms. McCarthy would say the intuition of a mommy counts more than pharmacokinetics. One of the issues in reading the literature is that thimerosal is ethyl mercury, and most of the toxicological data is on methyl mercury. Ethyl mercury is metabolized and excreted far faster than methyl mercury, which is what you eat in tuna. But ethyl mercury is slower than Fred, Lucy, or Ricky mercury. The toxic effects of mercury are due to prolonged exposure rather than brief exposure, which is why the occasional piece of sushi or tuna sandwich is, like the earth, mostly harmless. So mercury toxicity is mostly due to methyl, not ethyl, and the body rids itself of ethyl mercury far faster than methyl mercury. But maybe, just maybe, it's the methyl mercury. Perhaps there are toxicities. Unlike adults, kids' brains are still developing, and perhaps they are more sensitive to vanishingly small amounts of mercury. Is there clinical data to support or deny ethyl mercury is a cause of autism? That is not a simple question to answer, as you would have to compare two groups, one vaccinated with thimerosal and one vaccinated without thimerosal. Doing that in the old days would have been an unethical study. But in 1999, the FDA took thimerosal out of the vaccines for what appears to be primarily a public relations ploy, since they had no data to support thimerosal toxicity, but preferred to not have people refuse the vaccine because of unsupported fears. They called it a, quote, precautionary, unquote, measure. The smokingest of guns is the fact that they removed all the mercury from the vaccines, except the flu vaccine in 1999, and there has been no decrease in autism rates. None. Autism continues to rise, probably due to broader case definitions combined with increased awareness. There's a wonderful analysis of this by Dr. Steve Novella on the Neurologica blog. All the clinical trials that have tried to tease out a correlation between mercury and vaccines and autism have found no association. And there have been some huge studies, some looking at over 100,000 children looking for a link. None found. As far as mercury and autism is concerned, the data is about as good as it can be. There have also been 13 large trials looking to see if the MMR vaccine is associated with autism. Again, none has been found. As I write this, it turns out the British researcher, Andrew Wakefield, who first linked the MMR to autism, turns out at best to have been profoundly incompetent, and at worst he lied and or fabricated his data. None of his studies have ever been replicated, and none of the clinical trials that have looked for an association between the MMR vaccine and autism has found a correlation. So Dr. Wakefield was wrong, but perhaps he may be a woman trapped in a man's body. So perhaps he has mommy's intuition as well. But as far as you can tell with autism, neither mercury nor the MMR vaccines appear to be the culprit in this disease. And I'm going to point out that this is not because there's questionable data or uncertain data or variable data. Every study that has looked at the association between vaccines and mercury and the development of autism finds no association. Not that data changes beliefs. And then there is the very cleverly titled Green Our Vaccine campaign. It rhymes, which, as Mr. John Cochran demonstrated, is more important than the truth.
and they attach like sucker fish to the environmental movement, which will take on increasing importance as our world heats up. So how can we green our vaccines? By removing the toxins in the vaccines. What are those toxins? According to the GOV people, aluminum, formaldehyde, ether, antifreeze, and hydrochloric acid. Some of them are grown in chicken embryos. My God, how can we give such things to our children? The children, the children, we must protect our children from these toxins. Maybe, if they were there, there is aluminum in vaccines. Aluminum is an important adjuvant that makes the proteins in the toxin far more potent and makes the vaccines better. So kids need less vaccines if there's aluminum in the vaccine. Total, over a decade with the vaccines, kids get about 1,200 micrograms of aluminum. The safe amount of aluminum is about 5 micrograms per kilogram per day. Another way to think about this is over the decade of vaccines, kids get the amount of aluminum that I could safely eat in about three days. Like mercury, it's not the peak level that causes toxicity, but chronic exposure to high levels of aluminum that's toxic. Vaccines give a quick little peak of aluminum that quickly disappears in the system. Aluminum, maybe I should call it aluminium, but I probably get some emails from people. But aluminium is found in many things in the world. You'll find it in your deodorant if you read the label. It's in baking powder. There's aluminum everywhere. Compared to the aluminum we're exposed to in our diet in the world, the amount of aluminum in vaccines is trivial. Again, in a world that subscribes to the precepts of homeopathy, these vanishingly small amounts of aluminum probably have marked increase in toxicity by the principles of Dr. Hahnemann. Uber quack. How about formaldehyde? Yep, there was some formaldehyde in your vaccines at concentrations that would make a homeopath feel comfortable. And formaldehyde is part of normal metabolism. If you want to stop exposure to formaldehyde, you need to start by shutting down your own metabolism. I used to have a Nagahide couch, but I changed it to a formaldehyde couch because the Nagas are a critically endangered species, and I felt guilty every time I sat down on my Nagahide couch. How about antifreeze? You mean ethylene glycol? Well, there is no ethylene glycol in vaccines. It's polyethylene glycol. A polymer of ethylene glycol is a chemically different compound, which is in some vaccines, and is also in toothpastes and laxatives, amongst other things. How about ether? The green R vaccines, people say there's ether in the vaccines. Well, there's ethyl ether, one of the first anesthetics that was used. Queen Victoria used it to deliver one of her children. But in the vaccines, there's polyethylene glycol, piezooctophil ether, or Triton X100, which is a soap or a detergent that keeps the vaccine suspended. I'm not certain, but I think that either the green R vaccine folks are bad chemists or deliberate liars or both. Or perhaps they hired the guy who wrote the Bible code to read the ingredients in the vaccines and find hidden meaning and words in the text. That seems to be the most reasonable assumption. 
And they also say there's hydrochloric acid in the vaccines. Do you remember your basic high school chemistry? If you have a solution that is basic, i.e. a high pH, you add acid, which neutralizes the base, to decrease the pH. That's how you bring it to blood pH level. As a result, the hydrochloric acid is destroyed by whatever base it comes in contact with. It would appear by their lack of knowledge of simple chemistry that the anti-vaccine folks cannot be trusted with the care of a hot tub because you have to add acid or base to the water to make sure it gets to the right pH before you get in it. I'm surprised that they didn't say the vaccines contain dihydrogen oxide, which kills 10 people a day in the United States, which is the number, according to CDC, who drown every day. But the toxin mercury gamut is not working so well, as either has been disproven by clinical trials or people actually read the ingredients on the label and realize that they're talking out their ass. So they've gone to the too-many-too-soon defense. To quote Douglas Adams, with apologies, the immune system is big, really, really big. You just don't realize how incredibly vast the immune system is. I mean, you might think it's a long way down the road to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to the immune system. It's not the mercury in the vaccines. It's the vaccine schedule that is the problem. Too many shots, too many antigens, too close together. Our children need to be exposed to fewer antigens less often so they don't get complications like autism and autoimmune disease. It's all part, again, of greening our vaccines. What is the vaccine schedule? How much exposure do children receive from organisms and antigens as part of getting vaccinated? You can find the entire schedule at the CDC, but in summary, there are five attenuated or altered organisms and 21 different antigens, the part of the germ to which the body makes antibody, that are given to children by age 6. A couple of vaccines are added from age 7 to 18. Is the vaccine schedule a lot of virus and antigens? Is this an enormous load on the immune system, sending it spiraling out of control to damage our children? Well, there are four ways to put the vaccine schedule in perspective. You can compare the vaccine to the diseases they prevent. You can look at the capacity of the immune system and the response to disease. You can compare the vaccine to normal exposure as part of life. And you can compare the vaccine to all the diseases to which we might be exposed. Vaccines either deliver small amounts of antigen or genetically altered germs that multiply slower and for, for a shorter period of time. As a result, the body, rather than being exposed to huge amounts of antigen from infections over a 7 to 14 day illness, sees just enough antigen to develop protective antibodies. For example, the hepatitis B vaccine over three shots gives a total of 30 micrograms of antigen. Whereas if you have active hepatitis B, you get exposed to about 1,100 micrograms an hour for the weeks of the illness. HIV, for which we do not have a vaccine, makes 100 million new viral particles each and every day. Patients with HIV who have active disease can have 300,000 viral particles per ml of blood or more, not more ml more viral particles. I've seen patients with 2 million viral particles per ml of blood. And you have 6 liters of blood in your veins. And the viral load measured in the blood of HIV is a fraction of the total body replication of HIV. The amount of exposure to foreign proteins and infections is phenomenally huge. 
And unlike vaccines, which often provide only one or two key antigens to prevent future infection, the infection itself exposes us to dozens of proteins to which the body will react. For example, when you test for HIV or Lyme disease, you do a Western blot, which looks for the presence of a half dozen different antibody responses to a pathogen, and that's just a fraction of the antibody response that we have to each and every bacteria, virus, fungus that infects us. Each infection, compared to the vaccine, leads to a massive exposure to antigens, and the body handles it just fine, thank you very much. Comparatively speaking, the vaccine is a walk to the chemists compared to an infection. Diseases lead to far more exposure to both antigens and organisms. If the alleged ill effects of the vaccine are due to too many antigens or too much antigens or too frequent antigens, the diseases should be far worse than the vaccines at causing autism and autoimmune disease. Unless, of course, the effects of the vaccines again follow the principles of homeopathy. The less the exposure, the greater the effect. So how about the capacity of the immune system to respond to disease? It has been estimated that humans can generate 10 billion, now I'm doing my Carl Sagan imitation very poorly, 10 billion different antibodies. And that due to exposures to germs and other foreign material, we make on order of 1 million to 100 million different antibodies during our lives. At a minimum, then, you must produce 150 new antibodies a day. The vaccine schedule, in total, would lead to the production of about 30 antibodies. From another perspective, it is estimated that if the immune system were exposed to 10,000 vaccines at one time, not only does it have the capacity to process the antigens in these vaccines, but doing so would use about 0.1% of the immune system. Compared to the antibody response to the antigens in life, the vaccine exposure and schedule is minimal, a wee dribble of a smidgen of an immunologic challenge. The ability of the immune system to respond to vaccines is vast, with a capacity that exceeds my feeble mind to comprehend, but even more so the minds of baby killers, um, I mean, the anti-vaccine folks. So how about the vaccine compared to normal exposure to the microorganisms of life? Remember, we have in and on us 10 to 100 times more bacteria than there are cells that make us. That is 100 billion bacteria. Each of us has 100 billion bacteria in and of us. You may think you are hot stuff, but you are really nothing more than sentient transport and delivery system for bacteria. It's not 42. The meaning of life is to move bacteria around and to provide them food. And that's just our norma flora, which represent perhaps a thousand different species of bacteria. We are born sterile, and it's a shame more people don't continue that way. But we are born without any bacteria. And in the first year of life, the baby is exposed to and acquires an enormous normal bacterial flora in the mouth, in the gastrointestinal tract, and the skin. And in that time, they are exposed to the bacteria of their parents and their siblings, the family pets, and all the bacteria in the environment. An enormous number of organisms and antigens, thousands and thousands upon thousands times greater than the exposure from the vaccine schedule. The number of bacteria in your own ecosystem, of course, pales in insignificance compared to the bacteria in the soil with at least a million species. That's not a million organisms, a million species per gram of soil. And those of you who have a propensity for cocaine know how little a gram is. 
Plus, there are those in the water, on your pets, and in the air. It is estimated that there are as many as a billion different bacterial species in the world. And that's bacteria. There are the viruses and the yeasts and the moles and the parasites and the mites and, God, millions more. Think of pig pen. That's what we are at the microscopic level. We wander the earth in the cloud of our own bacteria, moving in and out of each other's clouds and all the environmental bacterial clouds. Every time you suck in a breath of air, you suck in perhaps 2,000 different bacteria floating in the air outside of you. These microorganisms are kept at bay by the immune system. Each bacteria has multiple sites that can elicit an antibody response. It's not one organism, one antibody. The number of antibodies the body develops against microorganisms it depends in part upon the complexity of the organism, and it is not unusual for us to make dozens of antibodies against one bacterial strain. Let's be conservative, if not politically, at least medically. Let's say we respond to each bacterial species with three antibodies, and we make three antibodies to, let's say, 100,000 environmental organisms, about 100,000 less than what's out there. That alone would be 303,000 different antibodies. To make that many antibodies by age 18, we would have to make 46 antibodies a day. That's five times in a day what the entire vaccine schedule requires over six years. In one month, you would be exposed to all the antigens and more and make all the antibodies that are needed in the vaccine schedule over six years. The vaccine schedule is nothing compared to the world. And how many infections are there that we may be exposed to in a lifetime? Well, I counted it up in my ID textbook, and I came up with 1,374 potential pathogens, counting from the standard infectious disease textbooks, Mandel, Douglas, and Bennett, the principles and practice of infectious diseases, an excellent replacement for Ambien if you ever need a night's sleep. Remember the comparison. The vaccine schedule gives you five neutered organisms and 21 antigens by age six. What the vaccines offer is a small, controlled, harmless number of antigens and neutered pathogens rather than the prodigious free-for-all of morbidity and mortality we get from natural disease. No matter how you slice it, the vaccine schedule represents a minuscule exposure compared to the antigens and organisms that we encounter as part of life. Worrying about the exposure from the vaccine schedule is like worrying about a thimble of water getting you wet when you are swimming in an ocean. The real reason, of course, that vaccines are given is it makes money for big pharma and doctors. The only reason vaccines exist is to enrich pharmaceutical companies and greedy physicians. Now, I'm an infectious disease doctor. I make money from people getting sick, and I don't make dime one from people who don't get infected. It is in my financial interest to make sure people do not get vaccinated. Most studies show that doctors at best break even by giving vaccines, and it's rare for them to make money on vaccines. As far as pharmaceutical company, are they filled with greedy bastards that corrupt medical practice? Is the Pope an ex not um, uh, Catholic? Yeah. Is the Pope a Catholic? You betcha. Big Pharma are weird institutions. On one hand, they have these incredible scientists who come up with amazing drugs and vaccine that have made sure our life expectancy is not 40 years. 
Then they take these amazing products and turn them over to lying bastard used car salesmen and bean counters whose job it is to make money. So yeah, when you look at the data, you do have to look at it with a grain of salt substitute. But vaccines work. They really, really work. And the data is impressive. To quote Charles de Gaulle, the graveyards are full of unvaccinated men. Of course, we live longer than any time in history. And tonight, my wife is going to make me watch the Academy Awards and time will really slow down. We live a long time in part due to good nutrition, in part the fact that we have good sanitation, and in part because of vaccines. Here I'm going to take a brief tour of childhood vaccines and review the morbidity and mortality by vaccine-preventable diseases and the efficacy of vaccines in preventing these diseases. With the brew ha ha Oh, yes. Thank you, Duck's Breath. Surrounding vaccines, it is beneficial to step back and contemplate the death and misery that vaccines have prevented. I'm used to pain and suffering and death and dying, but the scope of infectious diseases on human beings is mind-numbing. And I do not know how to put all this suffering and death into understandable numbers. Billions of people, primarily children, have suffered and died from infectious diseases. Before vaccines... Most children would suffer the majority of these illnesses before adulthood, and they still do in the non-industrialized world. If the vaccine deniers had their way, our children would suffer again, and millions of more would be added to the list of the dead and the maimed, which I believe is a Norman Mailer book. I recently read Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. It's a book about Abraham Lincoln and a good read, but most people probably would not pay attention to the number of deaths reported in that book that were due to preventable or treatable infections. Kids kept dropping left and right in this book from infectious diseases. In 1800s, the infant mortality rate was 300 kids would die per 1,000 lives births, almost always from infections. That's 30% of children would die of infection in one year of one sort or another. Before, of course, vaccines, before antibiotics, and before that most miraculous of all inventions, the flush toilet, the place where I get my reading done. I have seen perhaps all the illnesses on the vaccine-preventable illness list except diphtheria, which is a function of my specialty. They're going to call me if there's a weird infectious disease. Because of vaccines, however, many of these diseases are rare in the United States, and most physicians will spend an entire career and never see one of them, which is good. Watching children needlessly suffer and die is not the reason we go into healthcare. It's to make money from giving people vaccines. As a last note, I have tried to find similar data for each disease, but its numbers are collected at different times by different organizations, and what I hope to give here are representative data for each disease. I don't think I'm going to drone on on every vaccine on the schedule, but selective ones. How about hepatitis B? Well, worldwide, there are 300 million people who have hepatitis B, and it kills between a half a million and one and a half million people per year. It's estimated that about 5% of the U.S. population has hepatitis B, somewhere between 800,000 and one and a quarter million people. And it kills about 4,000 people a year from cirrhosis and another 1,000 deaths a year from hepatoma. The vaccine for hepatitis B is greater than 90% efficacious in preventing the disease. In 2001 alone, it is estimated that the hepatitis B vaccine prevented 6 
100,000 deaths. It's estimated that if routine infant hepatitis B vaccination reached 90% coverage, that you would prevent about 84% of the global hepatitis B deaths and prevent around 850,000 people from dying from hepatitis B. How's about diphtheria? Diphtheria is a bacterial illness which causes a sore throat and kills children by obstructing their airway so they suffocate. In the 1920s, there was about 200,000 cases of diphtheria a year in the United States, and 15,000 children died of diphtheria. Now we get a case a year. What happens when people don't get their vaccinations? Well, in what used to be the USSR, there was a breakdown in the public health systems. And between 1990 and 1995, kids didn't get their vaccine. What happened? There were 125,000 cases of diphtheria and 4,000 deaths due to that disease. The vaccine, however, is 95% effective in preventing diphtheria. If we quit giving our kids diphtheria, the bacteria is still out there. It will come back. Now, you may say to yourself, well, not in the United States. Well, there are two diseases which are making a comeback because people aren't getting their vaccination. One is the Hib vaccine, the Haemophilus influenza type B. It used to be that about 20,000 kids got it every year in the United States, mostly kids under age five, and about 1,000 of them died. It's estimated that there's about 3 million cases a year worldwide and about 380,000 deaths per year. That's pretty bad. One in 20 kids who get invasive Haemophilus B die. Vaccine efficacy is about 95%. And what happens? Well, we haven't seen the disease. When you look at the graphs of invasive Haemophilus B, it disappears, except in Minnesota, where there was a mini-outbreak. They had five cases and one death in a group of people who, for one reason or another, did not get their vaccination. Unless you practice in Minnesota, Haemophilus influenza type B should be a disease of historical interest. The other big bugaboo has been measles. There were historically in the United States about 400,000 cases a year and about 400 deaths, which is not too bad. Currently in the world, there's about 30 million children who get measles each year and about 345,000 children die, which is about a death rate of 0.1%. The vaccine, however, is efficacious. It prevents up to 95% of cases of measles. Now, because of the scare of the MMR, especially in Europe, vaccine rates for measles have plummeted down to the 70% range in some countries. And as a result, they're having a booming epidemic of measles. They report 12,000 cases of measles between 2006 and 2007, which resulted in seven deaths, a death rate of about 0.06%. So measles doesn't kill well-nourished Western Europeans like it does malnourished African children, but it kills nonetheless. The anti-vaccine people often say something of the sort that, well, if they were weak enough to die from vaccine, they deserved it. But I don't think any measles death is a good death. We're also seeing an increase of measles in the United States, and there have been several outbreaks in unvaccinated populations. We have only had 131 cases of measles and no deaths yet, but 
if people keep not getting vaccinated, we will have more measles and we will have measles death. Fifteen of these cases did require hospitalization because they were so sick. It's important to remember that all these infections are an airplane flight away, and measles especially has been associated with importation from other countries where it's endemic, and then once it gets into an unvaccinated population, cuts loose. And those are several examples of the efficacy of the vaccinations, and more details can be found on my essay on this topic on the Science-Based Medicine blog. But to give perspective on the impact of vaccines, I will quote a JAMA review. Quote, a greater than 92% decline in cases and a 99% or greater decline in deaths due to diseases prevented by vaccines recommended before 1980 were shown for diphtheria, mumps, pertussis, and tetanus. Epidemic transmission of poliovirus, measles, and rubella viruses have been eliminated in the United States, and smallpox has been eradicated worldwide. Declines were 80% or greater for cases and deaths of most vaccine-preventable diseases targeted since 1980, including hepatitis A, acute hepatitis B, haemophilus influenza B, and varicella. Declines in cases and deaths of invasive strep pneumoniae were 34% and 25%, respectively. End quote. Vaccines have been a boon to mankind. The impact of vaccines on improving the health and well-being of mankind is tremendous. In the United States, we have lost track of the benefits as we have not had to see our children suffer and die as they do in the rest of the world from these diseases. And we have lost track of how quickly infectious diseases can spread and kill. Influenza, without the benefit of modern transportation, managed to kill between 25 and 50 million people in 1919. Estimates suggest that these diseases may have helped kill 90-plus percent of the indigenous people of North and South America when introduced by Europeans. Of course, there's benefit for this. The one time there has been a slowing in the amount of greenhouse gases in the environment has been during plagues. When you have a plague that kills off large numbers of people, people aren't producing greenhouse gases, their animals aren't producing greenhouse gases, and their farms revert to forest land. When there were plagues that killed off Western Europe with the Black Death, and when plagues killed off the Native Americans with the exposure to Western infections, it was the only few times that greenhouse gas emissions have decreased. Maybe, hmm, maybe the anti-vaccine people are actually working for Raz Agul, who is, of course, to quote the Wikipedia, an international terrorist and assassin whose ultimate goal is a world in perfect environmental balance. He believes that the best way to achieve this balance is to eliminate most of humanity. Raz usually tries to assault the world's population with a biological weapon such as a genetically engineered virus. End quote. Or perhaps they're just going to be against vaccines. Yeah, that's the ticket. That's how we're going to green our vaccines. We're not going to use them and let the world die off. I always remember that the key word in my subspecialty is infectious. Many of these illnesses, besides being preventable, are highly and efficiently contagious. With the exception of smallpox, all these infections continue to exist and outbreaks continue to occur in populations that, for whatever reason, 
failed to get vaccinated. Measles, pertussis, polios, and others will continue to kill and injure and always in the unvaccinated. The amazing feature of vaccines is how much benefit they provide with so little risk and so little cost. Most of the time in acute care medicine, you have to continually weigh the risks of therapies or procedures against potential benefits, and everything costs so much money. Vaccines are almost a free lunch. As Santana said, Oye como va? He also said those who do not remember the past are condemned to get vaccine-preventable illnesses and die. Anti-vaccinationists do not remember the past or the rest of the world when they say that vaccine-preventable childhood illnesses are mild and most kids don't die because of them. It is true, thanks to nutrition and general medical care, that children don't die from these diseases very often. If they're vaccinated, they don't die at all. I will spare you a rant at how profoundly selfish I consider most anti-vaccinationists to be. Vaccines are one of the great triumphs of medical science. They cost little, have few side effects, are incredibly safe, and they don't cause autism. If they just made free beer, they would be perfect. Green are vaccines. The only green you will see by getting rid of vaccines or decreasing their use is the grass growing on the graves of children needlessly killed by preventable infections. And so, that's it. End of another Quackcast. This has been brought to you as a side project of Pusware.com, where you'll find the Percy Flager's Puscasts, a bi-weekly review of infectious diseases, where you can even get free type 1 CME. This is copyright 2009, Creative Commons license. References are on the show notes and can be linked at quackcast.com and old podcasts are there as well. Because the world needs more Mark Chrislop. Not only should you be listening to my infectious disease podcasts, but I am a twice monthly writer at the Science Based Medicine blog and my own infectious disease related blog, Rubor Dolor Kalor Tumor. My ravenous ego needs constant reinforcement. So please go to iTunes and write me a glowing review. If you have hate mail or spam or questions, send them to knowitall at quackcast.com. But I just never seem to get around to my email. I don't know why I find it so onerous. The music is by my son when he was 12, improvising on the guitar. And now, if you'll excuse me, I need to go watch the Academy Awards. Oh, God.